0: If ads give you a pain in the nads or the nadettes, join us now on our new subscription model on Apple. It's all ad-free. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the
1: original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com.
0: To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
1: This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: How are you doing there? It is podcast time and bizarrely, actually beautifully, we are broadcasting, well I am broadcasting from the KISS FM studios in Istanbul, would you believe? I know you probably heard last week I'm in Turkey, I'm doing a gig here in Istanbul, a most fantastic city, most fantastic city uh, It's one of my
1: favourites, Mac, actually.
0: You've been, have you, John? Yeah, yeah. I was there, it
1: must have been 10 years ago, but I, I loved Istanbul because it has that lovely mix of old and new. Food is fantastic and the people are lovely.
0: Do you know what we're going to do, John? We're going to do an entire, in the same way we did Inishman, we did Sweden. On Thursday, we'll do an entire Istanbul stroke Turkey podcast, just impressions of this place while I'm here, because it yeah. is it is fascinating. Lots of weird stuff going on, but as I described it yesterday to somebody, it's half Milan, half Karachi. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So this part of Istanbul is like being in Milan. It's high-end, it's very stylish, very fashionable. Yeah. Everyone turned out amazingly well. And that's like the eastern Thailand. side
1: of the city, isn't yeah. it? Yeah,
0: and then you go down the road and you're in Pakistan. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah, you know? yeah. So it is really, Full really, really is
0: strange. But I'll tell you, I'm, I'm I'm actually traumatized, John, this morning. I'm traumatized and I'll tell you what happened to me yesterday. I went down to an area called Bishiktas, which is uh, a football team, people might know. Yeah, but it's yeah, a yeah. big, big crowded area, lots of little nooks and crannies and little alleyways and rabbit warrens of streets and you know, all sorts of stuff going on, music everywhere, food everywhere, all that sort of thing. And I walk by a Turkish barber and I say to myself, Do you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna get the classic Turkish barber shave here, right? So little <laughs> alpha, he's sitting on the corner, he's having a he's having a fag, and I and I say just, you know, finish up your fag there and whenever you're ready. So he props me up on the gurney, right? Yeah. And I'm sitting on the gurney and he, he does the whole the shave, the towels, the hot towels, the cold towels, lathers me up the whole thing, right? One of those switch blades. Yeah, exactly. Like and and McCoy, then you know, yeah, you yeah. Kinda, you can kind of slightly hear him. He's a little bit too close with the blade, you know, and you can hear the <laughs> right? But it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. And I'm loving it, right? And it's a really, really nice way of actually waking up as well. Of kind of refreshing yourself. So then I'm kind of half asleep at this stage. The head is up looking at the ceiling. He's going at it the whole thing. Unbeknownst to me. I'm sitting there and I actually at this stage have my eyes kind of closed. I'm kind of sorry, somnolent, almost summulant. falling asleep, Lovely. almost with the, with the flavors and the smells yeah. and the heat and all that sort of stuff. And he puts wax up me nose. What? I've had my nose, I had my nostrils waxed yesterday. I feel defiled,
1: right? So that's a whole new thing of it's a whole new, like, not only back that, sack and crack and nostrils.
0: I'm sitting there, there's fucking two... Cotton buds up the nostrils, full of roasting wax. I'm like, I hear, but then even worse than that, he puts it all around my forehead. I said, Oh man, I don't know, fucking hair my forehead, right? And rips it off. So I'm, I'm, I just, I feel cheapened. I, I'm, I'm distraught now. I swear to Jesus, you got a Brazilian on your nose. I didn't know where to look in the back of my ears, the whole thing, <laughs> right? And he's going at me. So what they do is they, the hot wax, on a cotton bud yeah. up the nostril, and then he yanks it out. And there was, so, high. so all I'm saying is, John, if you go for a shave here.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, the, you know, the, the, the thing you have to do now, Mac, is you have to go and get a Turkish bath to in a man.
0: Yes. Have you had one?
1: I've had one. And uh, when I went in there, he was this huge mama of a guy. And you know, the way they heat you up and you're lying on the, the hot floor and the tiles and all the rest. And then they start lathering you with soap. And stretching you and all, that. he beat the living shit out. of me. <laughs> But maybe I'll thought, avoid that. Thing. I thought this was be pleasant. I was well, battered by blue. Maybe I'll avoid that.
0: Maybe my I've I've had too many close encounters with large Turkish men of mal intent over the last twenty four <laughs> hours, and I don't think so because I actually do. I feel I feel I feel abused. I feel defiled. I, I feel I feel fragile after my experience of my orifices has waxed which is not something I advise anyone listening to the podcast. Anyway, we digress. This week, John, we're going to talk about coins.
1: Right. right? Good because stuff. Because
0: have you noticed what's happening in the crypto world? You see what's happening this, I, this week? I
1: was looking at that and it's carnage. Total coin. Carnage.
0: Well, it's a good job we called shite on it when we did, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's a, it's a fascinating thing. And I'll tell you what I want to do is I want to talk to you about coins, but the history of coins. Like, I think I've said it before on the pod. Money is one of these really strange things that everybody knows what it is, but very few people actually understand it. Right? So we know what money is.
1: Yeah, it's it's, but it is a
0: bizarre. We've we've talked about this before. It is a kind of a very abstract, bizarre kind of concept. It's 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 a very abstract, bizarre concept. I happen to believe the best definition that I've come up with because I've been thinking about this for quite some time is that money is a technology that humans invented to make a very, very complex world a little bit more simple. Yeah. That money has actually allowed us to figure out the world. It's like an organizational tool that organizes our world. And therefore, every, and it's been around a long, long time. I mean, the very first evidence of money, as we know, is going back to the very first evidence of urban civilization. So Sumeria in Mesopotamia, Mm. about 5,000 odd years ago. actually 5,000 years BC, so 7,000 years ago. But fascinatingly, and coins are just an innovation on the technology. Yeah. So coins were introduced. And the reason we're going to talk about coins is we're going to talk about Bitcoin in a minute. But I think I am now in the land, John. Turkey is the land of the Lydians. And the Lydians were the first civilization to come up with coins, right? right. So these were the first people that came up with coins. They minted gold coins. They came. They were also the first civilization to come up with sovereign coins, meaning that only the king could mint them. So what they did is they centralized their power. Fascinating. And do you you remember King Midas? Yes, yeah, yeah, Yeah. the Midas touch. The Midas touch, right? So Midas was, it's a great story, Midas was the king of the Lydians, the first king of the Lydians, right? And according to Greek legend, and this is because I've been traveling around uh, Turkey, which used to be all Greek, many, many centuries ago. And I've been imbibing this stuff and imbuing myself with these stories. But Midas was a very poor, but very generous king. Okay. So that's yeah. the thing. And he used to always open his doors to all sorts of people. He was a really decent guy. He's like, you knowing now we think Midas would have, must have been very greedy because you think Midas gold, right? Mm. But no, he was actually an extremely, extremely generous king. He was very poor, and despite his privations he used to bring people into the house he was like airbnb for the ancients okay imagine that right <laughs> and one of the people that midas gave refuge to one night was the foster father of bacchus bacchus was the greek god of crack of good crack okay right. of drinking and carousing and having the laugh right yeah
1: yeah
0: and when bacchus heard from his father his foster father that this lovely king who was very poor, but very, very decent in Lydia, had given him shelter and had taken him in, Bacchus said, I'm going to go and visit that guy and I'm going to give him a wish as a repayment, right? And so he said to Midas, what do you want? And the poor fellow with Midas was Midas was very poor. And as you and I know, being a poor carpenter is bad enough, but being a poor king, the kings are supposed to be rich. So he was an embarrassed king. He was embarrassed by his own poverty. And what Midas said is "Look." you just grant me one wish, and Bacchus said, "Yeah, what is it?" He said, "Everything I touch turns to gold," because he wanted to be rich. Yeah, but of course, he bites into an apple that turns to gold, right? And then he realizes he breaks his teeth, <laughs> breaks his teeth. Then he realizes how bad it is, and his little daughter, who he loved, ran up to him and hugged her daddy, and she turned to gold. Right. So Midas realized then that he'd made a mistake, and this is the Greeks trying to deal. With the abstraction we're talking about at the start, right?
1: Yeah, the Greeks yeah, yeah. were
0: trying to deal with this idea that gold is essentially useless, right? You can't eat it, you can't burn it, you can't cook with it, you can't do anything with it. Yeah. It is—it has value because it's useless, because of its uselessness. And the Greeks were trying to deal with how do we deal with abstract value and real value because this is what the Greeks were trying to come to terms with, because they were actually beginning to use gold. So the Midas touch is actually a philosophical tale, but it's also a moral tale about greed, that, you know, in actual fact, too much money is eventually useless to you if all you surround yourself with are tokens and little sort of possessions. Yes. So basically, Bacchus said to Midas, look, no worries, mate. I'll actually take some pity on you because you're not a bad bloke. And what you're going to do is you bathed there in this river called the River Pactolus. there was a big river Pactolus in Turkey. And so the legend said that the Pactolus was full of gold because Midas actually washed himself off there. But in actual fact, the reality is that they found gold deposits in that particular river, the Pactolus. In the same way as you'd find gold deposits in, you know, the gold rush in the States, you know, 100 years ago. And the Greeks called the gold electrons which is where the term electricity comes from. Actually, I think you mean electron maker,
1: because uh, not electron. Uh, electron is is an alloy of gold and silver. But I know what you mean anyway.
0: Yes. And in Greek, in ancient Greek, it means he who shines. Yeah. And that's what yeah. they found. And then suddenly they realized we've got this stuff for free. It's like yeah. a massive windfall just, just lying there. It's lying there. And they yeah, said, yeah. you know what? Other people value this. Why don't we mint it and away we go? And what they did was they began to print coins. And the reason the coins are important is if you have coins, you have small denominations and the smaller the denomination, the more people you can bring into the market. So in a way, the Lydians moved from trade to what we would know as commerce. Right. right? They became right. the first commercial empire. And there there's an expression that they used to be used down in my granny's pub in Cork many years ago. A place that actually ended up now being called the Tatterjack. Jack People in Cork will know it. That was originally my Granny's Pub. It wasn't called the Tattler Jack then. It was called Priors, right? But mm. I remember when I'd have to go into a thing called the tap room to collect glasses when I was a kid. And the farmers uh, used to used to I'd uh, give them back their change, right? And then the farmers used to complain that the granny was as rich as Croesus because she was basically the publican, right? Right, laughing, right, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Right?
0: yeah. And I was like, who's this Croesus fella, right? Croesus was the king of the Lydians and he was the richest man in the world in the ancient uh, days. And of course, he made a fatal mistake. He uh, he took on the Persians, who your crowd, you quite like, who are just down the road here. <laughs> and they and they knocked the, the shite out of him. Yeah. And uh, eventually Croesus died. But all this stuff comes, John, from the history of coinage. And what the Bitcoiners failed to realize when they on Twitter tell me that I know nothing and do your research and I'd advise you to talk to such and such. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that... I'll debate you. Yeah, exactly. But Bitcoin's only another iteration of the technology that is money. Right? And for the coins to work, they need mass adoption. What the Lydians figured out was, one, the state issued the coins. So the link between state power and money, which I've always believed is fundamental, goes all the way back to the seven or 800 years before Jesus. And we know all this because a fellow called Herodotus, yes. who was a Greek historian, wrote it all down in histories. One last thing on the Lydians. The Greeks complained, that think about this in terms of femininity and terms of gender balance. The Greeks, Herodotus complained that the Lydians were so rich, they didn't even have to put their daughters into prostitution. <laughs> Think about that. Think about that. Right. That's how the world. I mean, being born a woman has been awful for awful. thousands. Yeah, of years. yeah, yeah. You know, and I, when, the, when, in, you, when in pretty the, much
1: every society, every through, society. through the ages, yeah.
0: And and the reason the Lydian women were rich is they were really, really good with money. Yeah. Because once you put money into the equation, it actually can, if worked properly reduce those traditional gender balances and those traditional gender ideas because the women have money. But it was a fascinating little anecdote. But what I'm saying about it is the history of coins is as old as the history of humanity. And those uneducated, anti-historical Bitcoiners who seem to think that they fucking invented this thing last year, right? <laughs> and you're like, man, you may well, remember we said a couple of years ago, it may well be something, speculative yeah. asset, but it ain't money.
1: Yeah. Well, as our friend Michael Saylor said, it's property. It should be called crypto asset as opposed to cryptocurrency.
0: And I think it's just gone through. Now, there will be, and there are many people listening, have a position in crypto. So I think we do it justice and we to talk about it. I'm going to see if it's got value. This week, though, you know, has been chaos in the coin market. Yeah. And I think to give us a Really good feel and good stir. I think we should go to London, John, and talk to Dario Perkins, one of the finest monetary economists out there. Really brilliant on economic policy, cycles, etc. So let's go to London and let's talk to Dario. Now, on the line from London, I have a friend of the show, Dario Perkins, who, as luck would have it, this time exactly a year ago, put out a note about Bitcoin, crypto, etc. called Digital tulips. Reference to tulip mania. We're back in Holland. The year is 1636. Christmas of. By February 1637, it was all over. Christmas, it was a mania. Dario, Great to talk to you. How are you, man? I'm. I'm so impressed with your recollection of dates and history.
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's nobody's checking. Because <laughs> <laughs> <Well, that laughs> I've been written down in front of me the, the date of Tulip Mania.
0: <laughs> all right. Okay. No. No. I, I, I'm, I'm a sucker for that sort of stuff. I, monetary history is my thing, which is why all this stuff fascinates me, Dario. Yeah. Then tell me. Okay. First of all, before we talk about the note and and, and your view of the, <laughs> tell me, the listeners, what's been happening in the world of markets, but particularly, let's kick off the world of crypto.
2: Well, I mean, everything is going down, um, you know, and this this was the comparison with, with tulip mania, because um, what people forget about tulip mania is that it happened during a pandemic. So you had this kind of plague outbreak in, in Amsterdam and, and, you know, the surrounding area. And you had this period where um, people were sitting around in taverns bored because of some kind of lockdown, because, you know, world trade basically stopped. Uh, and so and they'd also had too much cash on their hands because they'd inherited money from, you know, people that had deceased during the, the plague. So you had this situation of, you know, too much time, too much money. Uh, and so you had these traders sitting around bidding up the, the price of tulip bulbs. And of course, you know, it all proved, you know, one massive speculative bubble that that very quickly deflated. And, you know, that's pretty much um, what's been happening in financial markets over the last few months. So obviously, crypto is a big part of that because some of these crypto currencies have basically gone to zero. And even the ones that were trying to peg against the US dollar have completely broken those pegs. Uh, but, you know, this is much broader. Um, this is a, a kind of generalized risk off in financial markets. And everything that went up during the last two years is has been coming down very quickly. And actually, if you wanted to be optimistic about this, we're, we're basically back to the, the kinds of valuations that we saw before the bubble. So it's almost as if this thing has been perfectly deflated, uh, you know, without causing uh, kind of big spillovers to the rest of the, the rest of the economy. So it's actually quite encouraging. And I think central bankers, particularly the Fed, will be welcoming this. You know, they wanted to see this happen. They wanted to see financial conditions tightening. They've been warning for the last three three, four months that this, you know, this is what was going to happen. Financial conditions were going to tighten and stocks going down, cryptocurrencies going down, you know, all of these bubbles deflating is basically um, part of that story. And I think, you know, I mean, there's similarities with tulip mania, there's similarities with, with dot com. Um, hopefully, you know, this doesn't turn into a kind of 2008 because it isn't, it hasn't been housing so far. So housing is different because housing is leveraged and it involves the banks And when house prices collapse, then you you get a very different kind of hit to the economy. But so far, you know, this is deflating fairly seamlessly, I think.
0: Well, it's a little fascinating little episode of monetary history. And for those who are listening who might not be aware, John and I have been talking quite a bit over the years about the extraordinary innovations the Dutch made in finance uh, in the years coming up to Tulip Mania. Uh, they had this extraordinary company, the Dutch East India Company, which was floated in 1609. If you imagine, they were so far ahead. They introduced the first effective central bank. The Brits say it was the Bank of England. In fact, it wasn't. It was, uh, it was the Dutch. Uh, they had uh, joint stock companies. They had leverage. You know what the funniest thing is, Dari? I don't know if you know it. In those particular taverns, there were the 17th century equivalent of chat rooms. And fellows who were trading actually adopted nicknames like the guys on Reddit to actually pump up the the tulips. And of course, tulips, I'll just give you one last bit of history. The tulips were introduced because we are broadcasting from Istanbul. Tulips were introduced by the Turkish ambassador to Holland from here in Turkey. And the reason they're called tulips is tulip is the Turkish word for turban. And the turban on the top of the tulip is why they're called tulips. This is a little bit of trivia uh, for the whole we, thing.
2: I, we you know, we didn't even discuss before the show that we were going to talk about tulip mania. So the fact that you can recite all of this history <laughs> and dates.
0: <laughs> well, it's just, it's a, it's a madness. I, I'm, a, I'm really interested in this because also in the tulip mania, there was an extraordinary spectrum of tulips. So it wasn't just one tulip, right? It was a bit like we're going to talk about the Bitcoins and the, the stable coins and Luna and Terra. There were a variety of different tulips. So there was kind of commoner Gardner tulips, which are actually called howdah after the cheese. And then there was the, the main guy, it was a guy called the Semper Augustus. And he was the tulip that actually went up massively in value. And as you said, collapsed. But what I want to talk to you about is after the tulip mania collapsed in Holland, surprisingly little impact on the Dutch economy. After dot com, surprisingly little impact on the American economy. After subprime, Extraordinary negative impact. Let's let's basically have a look at that. Is this dot com or is it subprime what we're seeing in March? I think I
2: think this is this is dot com because this, this hasn't been leveraged up. You know, when you you know buy a house, you take out a huge loan, and somebody's on the hook for that, either you or the bank, depending on the different institutions, different ways, you know, different countries set it up and so um you get you know a big collapse in asset prices which is the house but the debt stays as it is in nominal terms so suddenly you've got this very painful deleveraging process and of course with subprime you had the whole global financial system was basically leveraged up on asset backed securities and mortgage backed securities so you you effectively had this run on the banking system which also became a run on world trade because these banks were funding you know global trade and so everything you know, the whole global economy basically just collapsed. I think this is this is very different. I mean, this is much closer to dot-com. You remember after dot-com, I mean, it was a horrendous decline in the value of tech stocks in particular. Um, but the economy, uh, the US economy, which was most exposed to this, didn't really have a recession. It had this, this you know, they, they, there was a recession, and then they revised it away, and then they revised it again and put the recession back in. So, you know, it was so marginal that the statisticians couldn't even agree whether there'd been a recession or not. I think this is this is probably something quite similar. And I think certainly that's what central banks are thinking. That's why we're not seeing any change in tone. You know, if central banks are just not remotely concerned about this at all. You know, if they were worried about this, you'd get another pivot towards dovishness and they're not. So they think the fallout of this is going to be, um, you use that horrible word that people used before the subprime crash. They think it's going to be contained. Uh, which of course it wasn't after Sublime, so they got that spectacular
0: win. <laughs> Irish Irish people are traumatised by the expression "soft landing." Okay, <laughs> there, there are many many thousands listening to this podcast today, and if they hear the expression "soft landing," it'll put the fear of God into them because that was the uh, the rallying call uh, in in O eight in this country. But so you, so what you're saying is because. The banks aren't involved because it isn't a leveraged play. People haven't borrowed excessively to get into these cryptos. Basically, people who thought they were rich two weeks ago are poor. That's it. Yeah, and the, and the silver
2: lining is that some of those people that retired because they thought they were rich are going to have to go back into the labour force. And you know, from a from a perspective of a central banker, which is what we're talking about here, yeah. you know, the central banks are very worried about their labour markets overheating, particularly in the US, where where they've got huge numbers of job vacancies and, and not very many people unemployed, not very many unemployed people. So if you push people back into the labour force, uh, that's probably their best chance of actually getting a soft landing. Because, you know, I think there's really two things here. So it's one is, I hadn't thought of one that. is this, this kind of deflation of asset prices, which is what central banks wanted. But what they also need to do is to get inflation down. And, you know, we, we've been talking about transitory inflation for the last two years. And I, I joked with you that I'll probably be coming on the show in 2045 saying inflation is still transitory. <laughs> but I think that... I I, think by the way, I think you're right. I think, I think the, think the central is banks, you know, particularly the Fed, is looking at the labour market and saying... Well, you know, we've been really unlucky over the last few years. We've had these big shocks. We've had the pandemic. We've had the war. We've had energy price shocks. We've had food shocks. We've had lockdowns. And now the Fed is looking at the labour market and saying, well, we think there is this underlying imbalance in the labour market, which is, you know, a bunch of people left the labour market and they haven't come back. But labour demand has has fully recovered and and more so during the, the pandemic. So there's this imbalance that is causing wages to go up. And that's the thing that's really worrying central bankers, that they start to see these second round effects coming. So the high inflation feeds into wages and then it feeds back into inflation. And so, you know, the the chances of getting a soft landing really depend on actually trying to get that imbalance in the labour market resolved. But also, you know, we, we really need inflation to come down at this point, because if inflation doesn't come down to a level that central banks find tolerable, then they're going to have to cause a recession themselves. So, even if the, the kind of deflation in asset prices doesn't cause the recession, we could be in a world where central banks actually need to generate an, a, a recession. And this is what we talked about. You remember when ha- Andy Haldane left the Bank of England? Yeah. And he left all, he, he was talking all this bullshit about you know, the Minsky moment <laughs> facing central bankers and, and all of this stuff. Well, the issue now is that central bankers start to believe that, you know, that they, you've got. Yes, that they, they, they panic themselves. They are panicking. They're definitely panicking. I think. They're looking at what's happening and they're seeing these kind of eerie parallels with the 1970s. And
0: everyone remembers. Are there, are there, they're looking to find eerie parallels. This is what I find interesting. You know, if you look at both pictures, you think, well, one is a totally different economy. One is a profoundly different world. Yeah. But if you look hard enough and if you try to uncover data and if you try to get these reasonably spurious and tenuous links, you can make them. And you think yeah, that's I mean, there, there, There's
2: some superficial links. So you had an energy price crisis, which is the, the, you know, if, you, if you're if at a certain age, you look back at that and think, well, this just feels exactly the same as that. A lot of these central bankers are at a certain age. So you get the, the kind of superficial similarity there, but also the, the surprise of this inflation. So nobody really saw this coming. Um, you know, central banks were kind of maxed out on perma QE and perma zero interest rates. And, you know, we would had this long expansion during the 2010s, which was very similar to the long expansion during the 1960s. And, you know, there was no sign of inflation until suddenly there was. And the bond market didn't see it coming and the central banks didn't see it coming. Nobody saw it coming. And so they're looking at that and thinking, oh, my God, this could be happening again. And the other thing about the 1970s is that everybody blames central bankers for that. Inflation outbreak. Now, you know, we talked about this before, and I think that's wrong. But central banks, you know, because they believe their own bullshit and because they've spent the last 30 years telling us that they're the ones that managed to keep inflation low, as soon as inflation starts to go higher, they have to feel, you know, some of the, the blame for that. And I think, you know, you've got Powell in the US saying, I want to be just like Paul Volcker. You've got the ECB saying, we want to be just like the Bundesbank in the 70s. You've got the Bank of England, which changes its mind every week, but, but also has this kind of Bundesbank feel to it. It does. So I think that, you know, we're in danger of these central banks just overreacting.
0: So, so is is your kind of risk case now, right? That what we get is a massive coordinated policy mistake by central bankers. They raise interest rates because of a fear of inflation, which is what they're trained to do. And as you said, there's a generation, particularly the generation at the top, are really profoundly influenced by being possibly young economists and central bankers in the 1970s. So they're now at that, that sort of the tail end of their careers. And you think that could be the problem. Like if you leave well alone, you allow the markets just, you allow prices to fall, you allow deflation in certain assets, then maybe, maybe by leaving well alone, the whole thing writes itself.
2: I, I think inflation would have come down. I think we've had a lot of bad luck, you know, with the with the situation in Ukraine, which has then pushed inflation higher again. And you've got food and energy prices. We when we talked about this before, I made the comparison with the 1940s, which I still think is the better analogy to what's what we're going through. So you have this shift higher in the price level, but it doesn't produce wage price spirals. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. You know, wages are not keeping up with inflation. So instead, we're getting this massive squeeze on people's real incomes. You know, there's basically a cost of living crisis in Europe. So you've got people everywhere are are just being massively squeezed by this. And you've got central banks saying, well, maybe we need to make this squeeze even worse by raising interest rates. Uh,
0: Even to to quote Bertie Ahern, who would say, who referred to our boom getting boomier, you say policy is getting squeezier. By the way, Bertie's, Bertie's deployment of the English language was a, a stuff of absolute brilliance. It was, it was entirely, entirely fabricated because anybody who ever met him knew he could speak completely normally. But once he went on telly, I went on the radio, he bumbled and he muttered, and it was just to try and affect this, look, I'm I'm a no, I'm a lad down the pub, don't worry about you. He said, yeah, 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 but you're the leader of the country. We don't want you to be the lad down the pub. We know the lad's down the pub, that's fine. But, but the idea is you think there's going to be, there could be another squeeze on real income. So just let's talk about the politics of this, right? Because well, I think always- Europe's
2: basically in recession. You know, I, I think the Euro the Eurozone, I mean, when you've got inflation at eight, you know, going up to ten percent, and you've got wages at one percent, you know, that is a huge recessionary squeeze that's happening right now. So I think the European economy is probably contracting. And yet the ECB is becoming more and more hawkish every few days.
0: Now let's look at the politics of this, right? Because I know that uh, Philip Lane, the chief economist, is trying, as far as I can see, reading the tea leaves. Uh, to fight a rearguard action for something along the lines of what you're saying. That's my impression I'm getting. But I think that the rest of the, of the council are getting spooked by echoes and fears of the Bundesbank and all that sort of Hans Tietmeier effect, you know, that, that sort of sense that that kind of ortho economics that the, the Germans were into in the 50s and 60s. But let, let's look at the politics of this. So, the thing about the Eurozone, the Eurozone project is that it does well when the economy is growing. But when the economy starts to go into downturn, those sort of ideological intellectual cleavages between the Italians and the Germans in particular, so I think that's the fault line, re-emerge. It's manifested sometimes in the Italian bond market, but I'd like to talk about more the the ideology behind it because what you clearly had in Draghi's tenure of the ECB was an Italian takeover of the ECB, right? He's gone now. So how do you think this plays out politically? If we get a recession, if unemployment starts to rise, if you get this sort of excessive hawkishness from the central bank, you know, the kind of triche raising rates in 2008 sort of nonsense, right? Which which he did. How does the politics of that work out?
2: Well, I mean, there's the, a the tweet that the ECB put out yesterday talking about diversity in it, on its committee, and it was looking at ECB staff. And actually, the, I think it's like 30% of ECB staff are German. And then the bit the, the next highest nationality is Italian. So you know, even among the staff, you've got this this divergence in views. Um, I think that, as you said, there's this there's the, the German approach to this is, you know, the Bundesbank was the only central bank that came out of the 1970s with any sort of credibility, and we need to learn the lessons from that. And at the moment, they're in this this kind of reverse currency war so as the fed explain, becomes, explain
0: that to me explain yeah that so you
2: know you know what a currency war is so everybody is is reducing their exchange rate trying to get uh, inflation and growth higher you know when things are bad so the last the last decade we had lots of currency wars in that direction but now we've got this this sort of reverse currency war which is the fed has this genuine inflation issue you know a genuine overheating in its labor market europe japan the uk none of these places have that same kind of problem Um, But because the Fed is tightening aggressively and wanting to sound very, very hawkish and talking about Paul Volcker, you've got the dollar going higher and higher, which is pushing all of these other currencies down. And so these other countries that are basically importing their inflation from the US anyway, because it was strong US demand that was pushing up global goods prices, it wasn't strong European demand, they're now seeing their currencies go down. So, import prices are going higher and higher. So, they're now importing more and more inflation. And so, I think, you know, particularly that kind of German mentality is to look at what the Bundesbank did in the 1970s. And it basically used a very strong exchange rate to shield itself from global food and energy prices going up. That's the the kind of German interpretation of that. Let let me just
0: stop you there. Let me stop you there. I'm just going to ask John, right? Because the two of us are nerding out as former central bankers and yada, yada, yada. You, yes, you are. Are you getting, <laughs> you know, the idea of importing inflation, does that make any sense to you, that the inflation comes through the exchange rate? For just, you know, for, 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 for somebody who who's sitting there... looking like, at Yeah, maybe,
1: yeah, no, I, I do get it. You're following, so what you're I, saying, I
0: didn't want to get all too bloody technical and, and all that malarkey. You think,
1: think about
2: Brexit. You know, when the UK voted for Brexit, our exchange rate suddenly went down very sharply and suddenly I was paying a lot more for Italian cheese. <laughs> Yes, oh, really, says yeah. the Italian.
0: <laughs> it says the Italian. And
2: then they tricked me by cutting out the corner of the cheese because they thought I wouldn't notice that there was this
0: kind of shrinkflation going on, where it's the same <laughs> price but getting less cheese. <laughs> you never do not rob an Italian man of his Parmesan. Yes. That's the 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 actual the conclusion of the podcast is <laughs> don't touch the cheese. Okay. <laughs> well, listen, just before we go, Darry, can I come back to the bitcoins and, and crypto, whatever? A huge amount of young people listening to this show who maybe hadn't seen these cycles that we've talked about and maybe weren't aware of the tulips. And a lot of people became invested in crypto. There's a huge amount of young people who own Bitcoin in Ireland. There's a huge amount of all the other cryptos. Many, many have have sort of placed big personal bets, you know, five, six, seven grand on, on these things. I was just talking to couple of builders who were in the house the other week and, and what they wanted to talk to me about cryptos, young guys working on the sites, doing quite well, like getting well-paid carpenters and things. What can we say to those guys? Because they've seen, you know, that Luna went from $100 to zero this week, one of the cryptocurrencies. Another one called Terra seems to be looking the same way. Bitcoin seems to be looking the same way. You know, is there is there any reprieve, do you think?
2: I mean, you know, there's probably some underlying value in in something like Bitcoin. You know, we still have this kind of DeFi, you know, decentralized finance. I think we're still moving in that direction. So the technologies that are underpinning these cryptocurrencies probably have a future. You know, I, I, I don't think all of those cryptocurrencies will, will come back, uh, but some of them will. And if you think about the, you know, the dot com bubble, that there was some underlying truth to it. So. You know we did have a new economy, you know that bubble at the heart of it was all about this new economy and you know the internet and tech companies and a lot of those tech companies survived, and you know their value came back, but there were a lot of really crappy companies that got completely wiped out, you know the companies that had never made any earnings uh, and, the and, pet stuff any, com and things like that yeah a lot of those companies were just dead and so you d- you deflated the bubble, but you know that there was an underlying value in the technology, and maybe that 's how this plays out you know that there is you know, the world is changing and it's becoming more digital. And, it, you know, those technologies have something underpinning them. But it just got, you know, th- th- this whole thing just got too overexcited over the last couple of years. And that's the story of bubbles. Um, and that's, you know, unfortunately, that's that's what happens. Um, yeah,
0: I, I think what somebody said, you know, about technology and re- re- referring again to the dot-com is that we always overestimate the impact of technology in the short run, i.e. people buy pets.com, they buy Bitcoin, they think it's all going to change. But then we tend to underestimate its impact in the long run because right now, now, 20 years later, nobody would ever play down the significance of the internet as having affected our lives. But it's just that, it's that ability of how do you possibly, how do you possibly, on the one hand, convince people that yes, there is value in the proposition, but on the other hand, that value isn't going to the sky right now.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, it's the difference between Pets.com and Apple or Amazon, you know, some of those those companies still around and and really thrived. I mean, I don't know which digital currencies are the ones that you'd want to invest in. But, you know, Ethereum has is, is got a fascinating technology. You know, Bitcoin is that kind of, I don't want to say the word gold standard of this, but because you know, <laughs> it hasn't before. I mean, that was the argument, wasn't it? That Bitcoin would be a sort of digital gold. and Yeah, and in
0: inflation, Bitcoin would go up as a hedge. Yeah. In fact, the opposite time <laughs>
2: Yeah and and if you you know if you looked at the the correlation even before this you could see that bitcoin wasn't behaving like gold you know it was behaving like a risk asset so you know you think about the 1970s where you know people lost a lot of money on equities and bonds but they made money on gold because of inflation this has been a very different dynamic and and you know it's it's been all of these cryptocurrencies are behaving like a risk asset and right now risk assets are really spooked because you know, everything looks pretty bad. You know, you've got wars, you've got inflation, you've got recession potentially in Europe, you've got recession potentially in China, and you've got a Fed that presumably wants to create a recession in the US. You know, this is, this is the worst type of environment for any kind of investment, isn't it? I mean, what I'm do you buy of- in that environment? That's, that's what investors are struggling with right now.
0: You stay in Istanbul where the rate of inflation is a splendid, 100% plus. Uh, the economy is flying along. <laughs> And it all looks, no, no, I'm I, i I'm, I'm with you. What do you do? But listen, Dario, we will leave that question hanging and we will come back to it. As always, complete pleasure. And we will talk to you in the next couple of weeks, actually just to really talk about DeFi, you know, the, the whole idea of finance and fintech and, and uh, etc. Uh, just Just to announce, John Collison is coming to Doki. John Collison, president of Stripe, the guy who set up probably the most impressive payment system in the world at the moment. And it'll be very, very interesting. So go on the org website. John, I think, is speaking to me on the Friday night. And I'm sure lots and lots of people would like to hear John's view of the internet economy, because somebody's actually created a company out of nothing. And I, I'm i not too sure what it's worth now. Somebody will tell me 100 billion, something significant north of that. Anyway, Dario, a pleasure. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me on. Take care.
1: interesting there what what dario was saying about the this kind of ongoing battle between the italians and the germans um, yeah. uh, in europe but it struck me as well that inflation throughout europe could or might it lead to a growth in the anti eu brigade and actually lead ultimately
0: to the breakup of the eu it could but it's very daily express logic, right? Oh, of course. Do you know what I mean? You know, you're, you're challenging your inner That's the height of my reading, Mark. Your inner, inner brexit But you could, like, there is a story which could culminate in a fracture. And that story is a rerun of the European bond crisis of the 2011-2012 what happened then in 2011, 2012? So basically what happened then was that the economies of Europe slowed down dramatically after 2008. And this shone a light on the sustainability or not of the Italian debt position. Yeah. So the bond markets of every European country, with the exception of Germany and to a degree France, sold off. So people thought, you know, Ireland sold off, our bond yields were 10 or 30. I think they were 13% at a certain stage. Italians right. the same, etc. And then Draghi, Mario Draghi at the ECB came in and he says, I'm going to do whatever it takes to keep the euro together. So what he did was he said, look, we know that the great thing about central banking is that we can actually buy every asset because we print the money. Mm. So when you print the money, it doesn't cost you anything.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So at the base of the central bank, the ECB said to the speculators, more or less, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough, right? They basically right. said, we're always going to be able to buy more than you can sell. So, frankly, if you want to go short these markets, we're going to burn you. And yeah. that's what happened. So, that was the technical. But that technical, John, in a way masks what you're talking about an underlying tension. Yes. And it's an underlying philosophical tension, I believe. Germans believe, because of the hyperinflation of the 1920s, that money is what they would regard as a public good, that it shouldn't be interfered with, it should be protected by treaty. They regard it as a bit like fresh air, that you should have policies to ensure that fresh air is never polluted. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, yeah. You should have policies that ensure that money is never debased. That's the German view.
1: Right. Italians enough.
0: regard money as a tool to be used when you're in a recession. So you print more of it, it kind of levers you out of a recession. Yeah. And these are two deeply philosophical views which are kind of at odds with each other and they're deeper than economics but was that the reason prior to the euro was that the reason why the lira was so weak the lira was absolutely weak I mean incidentally it's the lira is the currency of Turkey now which is particularly yes. weak yeah. yeah the Italians took the view that the way in which Italy would remain competitive is that they would devalue the lira every couple of years mm. which is rebalance the books kind of reset the economy and allow Italian manufacturing to survive and to thrive. Now, the fascinating thing is that people don't realize this. Italy is the second largest manufacturing power in Europe. It's the only manufacturing power in Europe that has got a chance of going up against Germany. Right? Right. And one of the problems with the euro is once they took away that ability to devalue, the Italians had to completely reset their, their business case, their actual business plan. And that's taken them quite a while. But deep down, there is this philosophical tension. France kind of has always pretended to the world that it's a, a little Germany economically, but it's not. It's a big Italy, right? right okay. uh, and the French are a Latin race and they have Latin sensibilities. So the French are kind of constantly trying to, since 1982, there was a thing called the Franc Four, which was the hard franc. It was brought in by Mitterrand. Mitterrand came into power as a socialist in the early 80s. He said... We're gonna go for growth in France, we're gonna cut the exchange rate, we're gonna go for it out of a socialist program. Financial markets and French people sold to Frank because they were worried about the devaluation. And he was so chastened by that that they entirely changed their French economic policy. And ever since then, Germany and France have been soldered together, technically. But Italy has always been on its, on its todd. So I think your your idea is that if we get higher inflation and then the central bank Increases interest rates, and that precipitates a recession. Mm. Eventually, the Italians will start to complain because the Germans will use the recession to bear down inflation. Yeah. But the Italians need that little bit of inflation to keep the whole show on the road. So it is a watch the space. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be drumming up the uh, the Brexit uh, drumroll just yet. Yeah. But you're right. You know, Europe is a project which is founded in crises. And Europe in crises tends to be a divided Europe. And that's the way it goes. Listen, if ads give you a pain in the nads, or the nadettes, we're delighted to announce that we have a new subscription service on Apple. Ad-free, two clicks, you're away. And it's all for the price of a pint, Mac. I know. Check it out on the Dave McWilliams podcast.